What altar and pulpit fellowship means is that we are in agreement with another church body so that we will share our altars and share our pulpits. In other words, I can go to your church and take communion. You can come to my church and take communion. I can go to your church and I can preach in your pulpit. You can come to my church and preach in my pulpit. Right now in the Missouri Synod, with whom do we have altar and pulpit fellowship? Exactly. We have altar and pulpit fellowship with the LCMS. And that's as far as it goes right now. Um, we used to have altar and pulpit fellowship with the ALC a long time ago before they got swallowed up by the ELCA. But now the, uh, the odds of us having altar and pulpit fellowship with the ELCA are negligible simply because they're not faithfully confessing the faith and we don't want to be part of that. So that's not going to happen. So then maybe we go to the other side and we look at Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the Wells, and could we have fellowship with them? Yeah, we probably could live with that, but they don't want anything to do with us because they think we're too liberal because we have um, funny views about being able to pray with other Christians and you shouldn't do that because that's showing too much fellowship and they have other concerns with us as well. And so they don't want us. So right now we find ourselves in the situation of not having alternate pulpit fellowship with anybody, but also recognizing the desire to have unity beyond our borders and community, you know, so that's why we dialogue and we communicate, and we try to work for genuine agreements, not just de facto kinds of things. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Worldwide, there are plenty of what we call sister, sister institutions. Some of them used to be tied in through world mission, through LCMS missions, and now are independent. Some of them we've had fellowship with before. But yeah, in almost every country, there's, there's churches we have fellowship with. You know, Canada, there's one. Brazil, I you know, just you can take them all off. Almost every country has a church. Usually not real big, but some of them are bigger. You know, Brazil's got a bigger sized church. Africa, there are many churches there where we have fellowship with. They're growing gangbusters. So yeah, there are Lutherans we are in fellowship with other places. Not right now in America though. Which leads us into the discussion about the ecumenical movement or ecumenism. Ecumenism, ecumenical comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which means household rule. And the idea of the ecumenism is getting everybody underneath one roof. Felt the unity. So ecumenical is all about unity. Idea of one church. That's the goal of the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement really got born and kicked off huge about a century ago. And it was going really strong for a long time. And it's kind of slowed down, but there are still real strong pushes here. And what happens in the ecumenical movement often is a desire for unity at all costs. And you'll get this, what I call before, lowest common denominator unity. Where, okay, so oh, let's go with the ELCA. ELCA is really good at doing ecumenical stuff. And so they want to have fellowship with the Presbyterians. Well, you don't teach baptism quite the way we do. Yeah, yeah, that's true, you don't. But you know what? We think you're being really sincere about what you do, and we're being sincere about what we do. So let's just agree to kind of disagree. And we still agree about Jesus, and we still agree about loving people. Yeah, that's true. All right, so we'll, we're okay with that. And so you keep on finding the lowest common denominator. The problem is, the further you go, the less that gets involved in the lowest common denominator. <coughs> History has borne this out. Most of you have heard of the World Council of Churches and have kind of a dim view of it because of the kind of stuff they do. When the World Council of Churches started about 100 years ago, they were a rather strong evangelistic group 
with a very clear confession of Christ as the only way to salvation. That was part of their statement. Over time, they decided they wanted to be more and more inclusive and invite others in, and so they started backing off their statement more and more and more and letting more people in. To the point now, <clears throat> where they've got Quakers in and just about everybody in, and they're even debating letting Jews in to the World Council of Churches. Why not? Because we all believe in God. And so you see, you just keep on making the, the denominator smaller and smaller and smaller. Is that really agreement? And we would argue, no. You're playing games, and you're being faithless. You're not really hanging on to the truth. You're letting doctrine go. And you do that, and you're going to lose the gospel. And history has borne that out again and again and again, too. Yeah, Todd. The World Council of Churches even recently changed their mission statement to exclude the word Jesus. Yes. So it's no sure. longer there. That's right. That's right. So church, yeah, church yeah, gathering with people who have interest in God stuff. So they keep on making it easier and easier to include more people. The day will come when they'll probably be in, be in fighting in Hindus and Buddhists too. All right. Yeah. Does the ecumenical movement include like the joint uh, document on justification that the LCA did with the Catholic Church? Is that part of the ecumenical? Yeah, sure. These, these, the, the ecumenical movement is not a bad idea. This is a fine idea. And we want to be ecumenically minded. In other words, we want to be thinking about other Christians and paying attention to them and seeing how we can serve them and help them. And frankly, the LCMS has not a bad reputation out there in the world because people value us for our doctrinal commitment and our doctrinal rigor. They recognize we're doing that well. And they like that, a lot of people. But um, it's tempting for us to kind of become very parochial, ingrown, you know, our own little circle, our own little house, and care, who cares about anybody else, kind of stick our head in the sand. You can't do that. We have an ecumenical responsibility. So we are concerned for that. But we're also cautious that we don't become ecumenical at any cost, lowest common denominator, or fiat ecumenism, where you just say, we're in agreement, we announced it. No, you're really not. But we announced it. But so like, the um, joint declaration on doctrine and justification that came out, you know, between the Lutherans and the Catholics, big hoopla over that. We've come to agreement. Well, the problem was Rome didn't accept it, and a lot of Lutheranism didn't accept it. And a few people wanted it to be so, but there really wasn't the agreement that people were hoping for. Now, is there progress? Yeah, we're making some movement. And Rome today is in the church. It was in Luther's day, and that's true. So there is progress being made, so that's why we keep on talking. Who knows? Another 100 years, maybe, may give you more progress, and we'll have legitimate unity that we can celebrate. We hope for that. We pray for that. It's our responsibility. Okay? So you don't need to say ecumenical is always bad. It's not. But you have to be careful how you're doing your ecumenical things. And you have to be careful the desire for ecumenical unity doesn't overshadow and um, eclipse or even veto the need for doctrinal integrity and doctrinal purity and doctrinal truth. That matters too. <coughs> Cole makes the, the comment that um, the ecumenical movement is, the problem is that you're, um, not really focusing on right teaching, and that's often the case. And you, you quit thinking about right teaching, and you just get more interested in feeling like we're all one. And that's, that's a temptation, and it's a problem. Yeah. So what would it, what would it, what does it take to necessarily have an ecumenical agreement looking specifically at maybe one concept or something? Because... You're, you might be able to of us having, you know, say with the Roman Catholic, we're not going to have full agreement because yeah. then we'd be the same denomination. Right. <laughs> right. So, to, uh, 
That's, uh, that's a good point. You know, but see, we might be able to have a discussion and we dialogue and we have a long talk about justification or about um, Mariology and we, or the, uh, the place of the saints. And we talk and talk and talk and the, and the Catholics say, you know, I think you're probably right when you say what you say. We agree with that. And we could come to agreement. Well, yeah, we could. And we might be able to agree on more and more things. And the hope is that eventually we can agree on enough things that some of the other things, you know, we can, don't matter that much. And see, that's part of the question too is, how much do you have to have? How much unity do you need? One of the dangers we have to be care of, careful of, and this is an old word, but you hear it thrown around, especially it's kind of revived again in our circles, is unionism. And unionism was a big problem back when the synod started. Unionism is when you just join up with other denominations without even caring. You know, you're not really paying attention to the doctrinal issues. And so the Lutherans join up with the Methodists, joint worship services. It's an example of unionism, syncretism. So you kind of take some of their stuff, they take some of yours, and you get together. So, like, if I am a Lutheran church and I decide to have a joint worship service with the Methodist church down the road, because we all believe in Jesus, well, that would probably be an example of unionism. We're acting like we're all one. We're acting like we're in agreement. when We're really not. And unionism is always a bad thing. That's bad. Ecumenism is not necessarily a bad thing. That desire for that agreement, that talking, the working for it, that's good. Unionism is different. Unionism just runs right to the conclusion, skips all the problems, and declares the world together. So what about, you know, what point, you know, like, like the Wells Church says that they don't believe we have fellowship and prayer, mm -hmm. you know, with others, and we have an opposite view of that. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing about, say, September 11th, and you had a, mm -hmm. you got together, the two churches got together and prayed, but it's not a worship service. Well, how do, you know, how do, that's where it gets all crazy. It's very sticky. What's yeah. a worship service? What isn't? What's a civil gathering? What's a right. worship service? And things get really quite hairy. Yeah. You get all kinds of discussions. And the whole Yankee Banky Stadium comes in and all that stuff. You know, and it gets, it gets pretty sticky because the definitions aren't real clear and the situations move around quickly and it's hard to understand what's going on always. So it gets, it gets pretty tough. And that's, that's a challenge. No doubt about that. So, with the Alter and Paul Fellowship, what we're saying is, Alter and Paul Fellowship is a good idea. We want that with everybody. We want to work for that. But at, not at the cost of ignoring doctrinal differences or acting like we're all in agreement when we're really not. There needs to be integrity here as we deal with these things. All right. So, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. The thing that happened in Yankee Stadium. Uh-huh. Okay, as a good LCMS Lutheran then... I should not attend an event like that at all? I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, I go down to um, Bush Stadium and I stand up and I sing the Star Spangled Banner and I maybe even sing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch. Now, am I in participating in ecumenical activities? Is that unionism? I don't think so. See, that's why I'm saying the lines between civil participation and church get really blurry really quick. We have a whole class on that, too, though. It's not an easy thing to I sort through. We're on a Greek airliner that's plummeting towards the earth, along with a rabbi and uh, a, mm -hmm. a Buddhist guy, and you're all praying together. Well, this could be violating some tenets of the church. I well, don't know. I might be praying while they're praying, but I probably don't. I'm not going to take the time to pray with the Buddhists when I'm on my way down. I, don't <laughs> I really don't care about that stage. You know, that's his business. I might be sharing the gospel with them. That'd probably be better. 
But as far as, you know, all of us praying to our God for God's intervention, no, I don't care about his God. His God's worthless. I have no interest in his God. None. <laughs> See, that's why, that's why unionism falls flat, because you're, you, get, you get caught up in the whole idolatry thing, and are you really being faithful to the triune God? That's our, and that's our call. The other thing to remember here is, <clears throat> as I stressed before, lines of inclusion that include us, and doctrine includes us, will by definition always exclude others. If we're in agreement, those who aren't, aren't included. That's just the way it is. And we're not trying to be nasty about it. That's just the way it is. You know, we have agreement on this doctrine. That's great. We celebrate it. We're wonderful. We love having this agreement on our doctrine. Well, down the street, they don't. Oh, well. What are we going to do about that? We can't draw wider to include them because then we're not being faithful to what we are. So that's what we have to be careful of.